The Veterans Affairs Department plans to bring more of its employees back into the office more often. Its new return-to-office plans start with the National Capital Region in early fall. That's after some nudging from the Biden administration, calling for much of the federal workforce to show up for work in person more often. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman has more. Jory, is this the end of telework for VA, or what are they actually asking for here? Well, it's definitely not the end of telework for VA, but it is a change in their day-to-day reality in terms of those workplace flexibilities. What they're going to expect in the fall is about half and half. You know, any given pay period of two weeks, VA employees can expect to work remotely for about half of that pay period and be in the office the other half. What that really boils down to is a minimum standard of being in office five days every pay period. We heard from VA Secretary Dennis McDonough on this effort. This is something that he said it was an important thing to strike a balance with the VA workforce about. And he said that this is the result of months of careful consideration of what VA employees could get done remotely and what is essential to get done in the office. A big part of this effort that we've been going through now for months has also been looking not just at what is the ratio of days in the office, days in flexible settings. We're looking at what are the attributes of a highly effective workforce? What is the data that affirms that highly effective workforce? So we'll be building that between now and the fall. Well, he got the OMB memo, that's for sure. And who is exactly impacted by this? Because the medical staff has been largely, of course, on duty in the hospitals, mostly because they have to be. Yeah, that's an important thing to point out here. The healthcare workforce for VA overwhelmingly has to be in person. And McDonough was quick to point out that they've been in person throughout the entirety of the COVID-19 pandemic. So this really impacts the more white collar office worker type crowd. People in policy, people in Veterans Benefits Administration and cemetery, I guess, for that matter. Yeah, those types of people. And he mentioned, you know, the effectiveness of the workforce. That sounds like a nice word for productivity. And is this something they're going to be measuring? Well, this is something they're keeping a careful eye on. There's a couple of data elements they have to keep an eye on as part of uh, what this return to office is going to look like. The VBA, for example, is more productive now and is breaking year-after-year records in terms of productivity. They have to to keep up with the cert with the surge in demand under the PACT Act, the toxic exposure legislation that was signed into law last year. And the workplace flexibilities is just one variable in play here. And so McDonough says that as VBA employees and the rest of the VA workforce do this more in office work return, that they're going to keep an eye on things and make sure that the, the productivity does not slip. That when we're performing at this high level in the field, and we can demonstrate productivity like this, and we are seeing returns like we are seeing on the PACT Act, for example, uh, we're going to defend their right to be able to continue to work in those more flexible settings. Right, but less flexible than it has been up until now. Yeah, that's less flexible than it has been up until now. Because some people have been teleworking nearly full time from reports we've gotten. Some people are there a couple days a week, but this is five out of 10 days. So that's averages more than a couple of days a week. Right, right. And this is something that we're probably going to see play out throughout the rest of the federal workforce. You mentioned that OMB memo. Uh, This is not happening in a vacuum here. This is a call from the top of the Biden administration to see more federal workers across government do this exact same thing. And I thought everyone was ignoring that memo, but, but I guess not. Now, VA has to take steps, doesn't it, to get the offices ready? I mean, there's dead plants everywhere and dust. I mean, they've got to get 
some work done here in order for people to get back? Oh, yeah. You know, McDonough pointed out in his memo that it was a major undertaking for the VA workforce to adopt telework under a mandatory environment in 2020. And it's kind of the same process in reverse here. They are, case in point, freezing a plan that had been in place to reduce office space because the workforce has grown and the office space has largely remained static. And so just making sure everyone has a place to be in the office when they return to the office is one part of things. They also have to iron this out with the federal employee unions, make sure that, that this gels with the collective bargaining agreements that are in place there, and just generally making sure that all of the things that need to be ironed out are, in fact, taken care of. Now, Veterans Affairs has the largest workforce of any civilian agency. They're almost twice as big as Homeland Security, and they also have the largest number of people in bargaining units, mostly American Federation of Government Employees. AFGE has come out pretty strongly in terms of maximum flexibilities, maximum telework, and they have cited the government's own statements that productivity has shot through the roof since the advent of the pandemic. So what about employees? What does VA did? Did McDonough address what he's hearing from employees on this? Yeah, well, a couple of points there. AFGE did get advance notice of this uh, this policy happening. Uh, we have not yet heard from AFGE on their reaction to this. But McDonough wants to make sure that employees have a clear channel of communications here. Case in point, he told employees that about once a week, he will be in the VA cafeteria uh, having lunch and the employees are invited to walk up to him, let him know what they think about this. And he did hear from employees last week about this. I did hear some pushback at lunch. And my guess is I'm going to hear pushback on my email. And that's really good. I want to be a part of an agency that has a free flow of information from our employees. Well, at least with email, you won't get mashed potatoes dumped on your head, but you'll still get the feedback. And this begins when, Jory? When does this all start to take place? So we don't yet have a definitive date of when this goes into effect. Early fall is what's being targeted here. I imagine we'll have that date in place once the things like that communication with the unions is concluded. But the national capital region is the place where it's going to start first. Yeah, that's an important distinction here. This policy right now only affects the national capital region employees, people within the greater D.C. metro area. And the focus there is that McDonough says the headquarters employees should set an example for people in the field that, you know, that mothership type idea of VA, that there should be people who are talking with each other, coordinating with each other and setting that policy tone for a workforce that is, for the large part, outside of the Beltway. And as far as we can tell, by the way, since you go to those monthly press briefings that McDonough does give, those are in VA headquarters. I think I subbed for you one day last year or so and went in, had some fun being a reporter again and going to that theatrical setup room they have where McDonough gives the press conferences. Those have been in VA headquarters, so there have been people there to man those oh, and yeah. get those set up all along. Yeah. I mean, in the times that I've been there in person, which is almost all of them, uh, it is a very lively building at headquarters. There are people milling about. And so we're going to see that be even busier in the coming months. Yes. And I think people are more afraid of the traffic and the parking situation or the mobbed metros. If it ever gets mobbed again, it would be good for metro. I think maybe that's what people detest more than being in the office with their colleagues itself. Well, you know, no one enjoys a commute, but that's something that we're going to see more of uh, play out in the fall. Well, instead of electric cars, what we need is teleportation. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. Be sure to check out all of his coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. 
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of looking like magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in looking like magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
they never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. That's you know? brilliant. <laughs> and um, being born in rural Southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can I can tell you that your your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.